Can we give it up for Donald sharing the announcements? And also for Jeremy on the spot, DJ. Uh, as Donald shared, if you haven't been with us, we've been in the middle of a sermon series that we've been studying. A uh, really important, incredible book in the New Testament. It's the letter to the Romans. And, and so if you haven't been here, I encourage you to go to our website and hear the previous sermons because what we've covered thus far has been absolutely life-changing. The things that Jesus has done for us that we've been able to explore and excavate from Scripture. We're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to begin in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. It says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege, the absolute gift that it is to be able to worship you, to encounter you with your people. And we thank you for your presence that is here. We ask that you'd speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, would you fill this very place, fill our hearts, reveal Jesus to each and every one of us. Help us to see him as only you can reveal him. And we thank you, Father, for the love in which you meet us and redeem us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You know, I remember um, one of the funniest conversations that ever ensued. Um, I still remember it because it was really unexpected. And a friend of mine, I, I think he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was about to like masterfully cue up a moment of hilarity. Uh, but I didn't know, but he knew. Uh, he's too smart. It's a group of us, and he says, I want to be able to trust Jesus the way I trust the mute function on Zoom. Let that sit with you for a second. He said that, and all of a sudden, all these amazing stories began to spring up around the table of people who thought Zoom was muted 
and all sorts of stuff. One guy, he threatened to throw his kid's dog out the window. It was just because he was like, they violated the COVID protocol. He, like, you're supposed to watch the paws at the door. He was stressed. He was on a Zoom call, a national call. He was just like, in Spanish, he's Dominican dude. He's like, I'll throw that dog out the window. He didn't know it was unmuted. Uh, oh, my gosh, story after story. I want to introduce my version of that line and cue something up, something I literally told my wife a few days ago. I said, I want to trust in Jesus' love for me the way my 14-year-old trusts in our love for her. That's, that's, that's heart, heartfelt, right? <laughs> Pulled on the strings. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. My 14-year-old will catch an attitude, will resist some instructions, will give us a hard time, especially the mother-daughter dynamic. I, I just let that play out. One time I tried to assert myself, I was like, this is above my pay grade, and so <laughs> let them figure it out. Um, but literally, she'll react, she'll do stuff, and in the next breath, without skipping a beat, shameless, audacity, could you give me money for I can go out? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, wait, wait, how did you do that? Like, uh, like, I know when I was a kid, if I violated in that way, like, I feel like I, got, I need a parole officer, probation, like, before I could talk to mom again. And, 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 but religiously speaking, I think some of us can relate to that idea that we don't often come to God with that kind of shameless confidence, especially when we do wrong, when we struggle, when we don't feel like we're meeting the standard and yet, what we're reading in Romans is absolutely life-altering because what we're finding out is that one of the benefits of justification, if you've been trekking in this book, we've talked about this idea of justification, this work that Jesus has done on our behalf that he credits to us his righteousness. He obeyed perfectly, died on our behalf, who did not obey perfectly. And by faith, we now have his perfect record of obedience. It's ours. We stand on it. God sees us in Jesus, and his perfect record is ours. And as a result of that, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are waiting for, what's the rest of the sermon? I, you know, hit me, Chris. I don't know if I can give you anything better than what it was just said. That we have peace with the living God through Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That answers one of the perennial aches in the human soul where we're constantly wondering and struggling, are we in a good place? God, am I in good standing with you? You know, from time immemorial, that has been the question that humanity has struggled. And how have we answered that question historically, especially religiously? We've answered that question and says, you can have peace with God through good works. You can have peace with God through religious sacrifices. You can have peace with God through etc. observances. And yet we're hearing something that's so powerful, so different, so distinct, we're told we have peace with God through nothing else, through no one else, 
but through Jesus Christ. You and I, every moment of our life, can live confidently, secure in where we stand with God. If someone woke you up three in the morning, you just woke up and said, do you have peace with God? You could say, yes, through Jesus Christ. It, like literally, it, it, it's there. It's the living reality. It's not something you do or force. It doesn't rest on us. We're told that the peace we have with God is through who? Jesus Christ. Is it through your works? No. Is it through my works, through my obedience? No. Is it through anything you could ever earn or strive? No. But Paul is making it so crystal clear. And if we heed this, it shaves off all sorts of striving and trying to earn and deserve. It, it rightly places us in our relationship with God in the security of a peace that has been obtained for us that we receive through faith. In this section of, of scripture, at this point, Paul is beginning to list out the blessings, the benefits of justification. He's building on everything that we've heard thus far. And that's why it begins with, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, he's building on this. But it doesn't just stop with peace with God. It tells us something else. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith. Can you say that word, access? You remember when Twitter first came out and we were all hopeful before it became the cesspool of, <laughs> of human sadness that it is? Um, what was part of the allure of it? is that for the first time, we now had access to people that we, no long, that we previously did not. We could open up our phone and find out, Steph Curry had breakfast this morning. That's amazing. <laughs> we could go lunchtime and be like, oh, wow, The Rock just did a workout. That's, that's pretty cool. Oh, oh, wow, I didn't know this person leaned that way politically. That's interesting. Uh, you, 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 could, you had access to people of stature, people that you and I would probably never connect with in our daily life, and we were there for it. We soaked it all up. What Paul is saying, that because of what Jesus has done, this, this phrase, access by faith, in the original language, it has the connotation of that you and I are able to approach someone of stature. That you and I have access to someone of power, of importance, of significance. You know what it does to people? The ease, the peace that a person experiences when they know if they face a situation, they have somebody to call. So it, it, I have friends that um, if they own a home, there's two categories of them. One kind of friend, they're always at peace. And another one is always stressed. You know the difference? The one that's at peace, they over time have a catalog of people they can call if something happens. It's like, oh, I got a, my, my roof, but my roofer is coming. You know, oh, but I got a leak. Uh, oh, but I got, I got a guy. I, my, my plumber's coming. Or, or, oh, man, I got this landscaping issue, but I got a guy. Then there's the other group, and it's just like, my leak, my roof is leaking. 
who do I call? And they're like, they're like they're asking strangers in the street, do you know somebody? You know, like they're, they're stressed because they don't know who to access, who to call. You and I, because of what Jesus has done, hear this. This is mind-blowing. At any given moment of your life, you can access the king of the universe. I don't think you heard me. Did you hear that? At any given moment of your life, you can access the king of the universe. You know what that means? You're on the seven train and someone's irritating you. King of the universe, I'm here. You're driving on the Van Wick and you're losing hope. You don't think you're ever going to make it home. King of the universe. You get a bad report from the doctor and you're stressed and you're worried. You can turn to the king of the universe. You and I have unmitigated access. It's not like you turn to God and he says, I'm really busy right now. Check in on Friday. I have an opening from 11 to 11.15. Be on time. Two-minute window of grace. That's not how he is with us. We have access. This is what Jesus has done for us. But not only so, it doesn't stop there. It says, we have, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I love this. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not so long ago, I took my son Michael out to lunch. Uh, I try to do something on the weekends, like spend individual time, and then I got to do group projects with them because we've got a lot of kids, and so just trying to spend time with them. Um, and so I took him out to lunch, and Aaron was going to meet us afterwards. And so I'm sitting down with Michael. We're talking, chopping it up. I'm asking him about his life. And, and he was telling me about eight-year-old world, and he's talking to me and so interested in all these things. And then um, he wanted roasted potatoes. That was on the menu. And in the middle of talking with him, and he didn't waste no time. The waitress put the, the potatoes on the table. She didn't even leave. He took it. He took a bite. I don't even think he prayed. He just put it. And, and he said, mm, taste of heaven <laughs> like, he never says stuff like that at home like what and then shamelessly Erin comes she sits down he doesn't even say hi to her say, you need to learn how to make it like this taste of heaven Paul is telling us you're saying what's the connection wait for it Paul is telling us that Jesus makes it possible for you and I to have a taste of glory to come now. Even though in this life we experience heartache, suffering, setbacks, we don't have perfect existences, we struggle, but through Jesus, you and I, unlike any people in the world, you and I who follow him, who know him, we have been given the blessing that in this life we can taste the glory to come. We can get a taste of what it will be like when we have unhindered, continuous communion with God in eternity with no distractions, no suffering. Every tear will be wiped away. We have a taste of the full healing to come now in this life, knowing that the fullness of it is sure to come. If that wasn't enough, it goes on. Verse 3, it's just like 
Paul is making this case and stacking blessing on blessing on blessing. And he goes and says in verse 3, he starts and says, not only that, he's saying, if this wasn't good enough, not only that, he adds more to it. But then he doesn't stop there. Verse 9, he goes, since therefore we've now been justified as blood, much more shall we be saved. And then he doesn't stop there. Verse 11, he says, more than that. And so he's giving us layer after layer after layer of the blessings that come to our life through the justifying work of Jesus. And in the midst of all those blessings, he gives us something that's really unexpected. It kind of throws you off. It's like, what's the connection? I'm not understanding how what Jesus has done actually empowers me to experience what you're talking about. Because look at what he says in verse 3. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Did you catch that? It didn't say we find a way to endure in our sufferings. It didn't say we grin and bear our sufferings. It didn't say we wait patiently till our, till our sufferings are done, then we can smile. It says we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but if I met someone and I just found out that they received awful, debilitating, life-altering, negative news, and they're rejoicing at that moment, I would be concerned. I'd say, oh, they snapped. It finally got to them. It happened. It happens to all of us. The pressure got to them. Imagine. Like, I just got really terrible news. The doctor said it's really, really bad. How are you? You're like... You'd move away from somebody like that. You said, next seat over. It would be concerning. But the, the scripture is telling us that one of the blessings of justification that we experience is this. It says that we rejoice in sufferings. How is that possible? How does that happen? One of the ways that justification, this finished final work of Jesus empowers us to be able to rejoice in suffering is this. When suffering comes our way, what's the first thing that most of us think the moment something negative, difficult happens to us? The first thought for most of us is, God must be punishing me. Man, you know what? I had it coming. This year, it was December, I said, this is my year with God, January is coming, this is, I'm going to really devote myself, you watch, I'm going to read my Bible every day, I'm going to be in church, I'm going to be the most faithful person, and, and June came, and he was like, where's God, who is he, what happened, you're like, you totally forgot, and now all of a sudden, when tragedy hits, you're like, I knew it, he's punishing me, he's chastising me, he's correcting me. I must have done something wrong. I'm getting what I deserve. God is displeased with me, and this is why suffering has come my way. The reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings is not because 
Jesus makes us a masochist and we just like, oh, I just really love suffering. No, the reason why we are able to rejoice in our sufferings is because while we're suffering, we can eliminate one of the most scariest, dangerous thoughts ever. We can say, this suffering doesn't mean that God is displeased with me. Because I know through what he's done in Jesus, he finds me fully pleasing. Whatever you're suffering through right now, you and I can adequately, correctly look at it in the eye and say, you are not God's punishment to me. You are God's transformation for me. Suffering is not a means of God punishing us or correcting us. For some of you, if you let that really sink in, like tears can come, stress lifts, and like, oh my gosh, that's been aching my mind. I thought this whole time I, I, that I just wasn't good enough, and he's trying to correct me, and this is the experience of my sins catching up with me. But what it's telling us, if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we are people that have been justified by Jesus, suffering can be a place of rejoicing because suffering is a place of transformation. God uses suffering to change us. That's kind of tough news for us. How many want God to change your life? Some of you are hesitating. Like, I, I know you're setting me up, Chris. You're like, ah, but, but I think I know where you're going to take me. It's like, no, seriously, how many want God to change their life? You want God to change an area of your life, uh, maybe it's your finances or maybe it's your relationships or something in your soul, that you, you, uh, an addiction you want to be broken free, you want change, you want to be different. Guess how God changes us? He doesn't change us through victory. He doesn't change us or transform us through accomplishment and the hill, mountaintop, he changes us in the valley of suffering. Through adversity, through loneliness, through rejection, through being misunderstood, through challenges of all sorts. Look at what the scripture tells us. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? One, we know God loves us. We don't interpret our sufferings as his punishment toward us because we know that's taken care of. We're loved, we're affirmed, we're secure. But we also rejoice because we know this. Suffering produces endurance. Can you say that word, endurance? The first thing that God produces in our life through suffering is endurance. Endurance means to be steadfast despite adversity, to be focused, to not quit, to not give in, even though you have lots of reasons that perhaps you may want to quit, things that are set up against you. So if, you, if, if you're understanding what the scriptures are telling us, it's telling us that one of the things that suffering is intended by God to produce in us is endurance, this capacity to stand your ground, to not quit, to dig in your heels by God's empowerment, 
despite the winds of adversity and suffering trying to knock you down. This is what God wants to accomplish in your life and mine. You know, so many people yearn to be gifted, to be famous, to be popular. Can I tell you what we should all yearn for is endurance. There's a lot of popular gifted people that can't endure, that when suffering comes, they run for the door. I see this in relationships all the time, and my heart really breaks, especially with, when females, they'll meet a guy, and like, oh, he's so cute, I like him, there's a lot of chemistry, maybe there's a future. I'm like, can he stand pressure? Because if he can't, at the slightest moment, you will be single again. Can they stand adversity? Can we endure? This is what suffering, what God wants to produce in us through suffering. The other thing we're told is that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character. That word character in the original language, it has this sense of something that's been approved, tested. Another way of thinking about it is, have you ever heard of products that are stress tested? And so I, I saw this post, I think it was like Joe Rogan or something, and he was talking about that he would put it, that he kept testing all these different AirPods and headphones in the sauna. He does this daily routine where he goes in this really, really hot sauna, and then he dumps his body in a cold bucket of ice. And so I'm like, man, if that makes you live longer, I'm good. I'll take my chances with the Lord. And so that don't sound fun. And so anyway, he, he kept talking about all these products. And I, it's just kind of funny. He was like, these don't last in the sauna when it reaches 200 degrees. Like, why do you need headphones in a sauna to reach 200 degrees? It's like, I don't, like, give the headphones a break. You know, like, I would... Anybody's going to crack under the pressure of 200 degrees. But what he was talking about is this idea of stress testing. That under the stress, certain things break down and they cease to function. Did you know that one of the things that God wants to accomplish in your life and mine through suffering, he does, he's not trying to make you more famous or more bountiful or, or all this or that, what he is trying to do is to do a work in us that at the end of the pressure, when the stress comes, you don't crack under it. That you're still standing with God as your foundation. You know what stress brings to the surface? It brings all the triggers. It brings all the hidden, broken things. You would never know that certain things irritate you unless the stress revealed it to you. Right? How many of you have ever had that discovery? You walk around life like, I'm a carefree person. I'm fun. Nothing gets under my skin. And then all of a sudden, the sun comes like, oh, no, I'll have none of that. None of that. <laughs> that uh, get that out of my face. Because it, it, it brings all this stuff that you were unaware of. It brings it to the surface. What the scriptures are telling us is that through suffering, God will cause our character to become approved, stress-tested. 
But it doesn't stop there. It tells us that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Oh, hope. I want to give you this definition of hope. Hope is a defiant trust in God's ability to redeem everything. Let me say that again. Hope is a defiant trust in God's ability to redeem everything. You know what I've realized about myself is that more often than not, I have optimism about the future, not hope. There's a big difference. If you ever talk to somebody, I have some friends that, you know, they're in finance or entrepreneurs or business, like those guys, they crack me up because they're just like, a lot of times they're not honest. I'm just like, hey, what's the future of the market? Bullish. It's going to be great. You know, like, it's going to be amazing. Up and to the right. You know, it's like future earnings, double digits. It was like, so nothing's going to go bad. No, no. So give me your money. Nah, I'm good. Um, oh, and what are they saying through their optimism? They're saying somehow... We'll find a way. I'll find a way. We're resourceful. We'll make this pan out positively. I realize I, can, I do that a lot. I want to believe in people. I don't want to give up. I want to see the good in people. I want to see the good in circumstances. I think part of it also, too, I don't like to feel sad or depressed. Or so I, like, if something challenging, I'm like, be optimistic. What I realize is optimism is exhausting because it rests on you. Hope is totally different because hope can actually be negative about the future and still say, but I trust in God's ability to redeem everything. Can I tell you, one of the biggest areas that I've struggled to have hope in has been with our three-year-old, Brielle. As many of you know, she was born with Down syndrome and at first, we were bracing ourselves for the unknown, the disorientation, and now we could not imagine our lives without her. She's changed our lives for the better. Um, my kids are better. We're better. She is the absolute joy of our home. But when I sit and think about the future, there are unbelievable moments of stress. I think about Will she be able to find a job in the future? Um, who will care for her? I think about the reality that there will be likely a day that she will be alive and I won't. And what's going to happen to her then? I think about the stress that that might create for her siblings, because they've already all pledged that she'll never be in an institution, that she'll live with them. And I'm like, that's, I, I hear that, I love that, that moves me. But, you don't, you're too young to know that that has ramifications. That's big. And you could lose sleep. You could add years to your life stressing and trying to be optimistic, and yet no amount of optimism can answer all these unknowns. And what I find myself more and more doing is turning to God and saying, I don't know how it will pan out. I can't say for sure. I can't plan enough. I can't do enough. But what I can do is trust in your ability to redeem everything. If you and I 
are armed with hope in the face of the uncertainty of tomorrow, then we can endure. God will carry us. But if we're trying to white-knuckle it through optimism, exhaustion and petering out is right around the corner. But suffering produces hope. But if that wasn't enough, Paul says this next. So says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 5 tells us that the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 tells us that the love of God is showed to us or demonstrated to us through the cross. One of the blessings of justification is that through what Jesus has done, you and I can have a heart experience with the love of God inwardly as well as we can be rooted in a historical undeniable act of God's love at the same time. In other words, you and I could walk around not only understanding the truth, but also we can taste the truth. We know it inwardly as well as we know it outwardly, objectively, undeniably, matter-of-factly. Why is that important and necessary? Far too often, I don't know if you've met folks like this, I've met many followers of Jesus who enjoy this really powerful personal union with Jesus. They, like these folks can easily pray and get into the presence of God. They, they, they feel and taste the love of God inwardly. They walk with it. And if you ask those same people, can you show me chapter and verse what the scriptures tell us about the love of God? Many of them will say, I don't know, but I feel it. I know it. That's both good and an incredible deficiency. Because you and I cannot walk around relying on our feeling of the love of God. Because there will be moments in life that no matter how you try to feel the love of God, experience suffering, struggle will try to snuff it out of you. So what do we need? We need to not only taste the love of God, know it inside, we need to believe it, trust it, see it outside of us, alien to us, existing independently from us, something that we can't touch, change, or transmute in any way. It exists powerfully unto itself. But we need both. Because I've also met, and maybe you've met folks like this, and maybe you identify with these characterizations. If there was like a column, and we put some folks under the column of, you taste the love of God, you know it inside, but you don't fully understand it. You don't understand what you're experiencing. You can't explain it, so you're not fully rooted in it. But then there's another column, another category of people that can tell you chapter and verse. They can recite every scripture, passage, they could teach the class. They could spit it out. But if you ask them, 
Do you know it in here? Some of them will sadly say no. There's this great resource. I love to check it out. It's a great podcast, and they have remarkable videos. Perhaps you've seen them. It's called The Bible Project. And um, they take every book of the Bible, and they summarize it in these really creative, engaging ways, and their podcast is really fantastic. I was amazed to hear the founder of this work. Guy's a legit scholar. Like, I, I, in the best way possible, I envy his knowledge of Scripture. I want to know the Bible like that guy. He, he bleeds scripture. He loves scripture. And yet, in his honest moments, he said, he just recently went through a period of time where I think it was about five years where he could honestly say he did not experience the love of God inwardly. Could he tell you chapter and verse? Absolutely. He could do a master class on it. But did he know it in here? No. We need both. We need to see it objectively, outside, undeniably. This has been done for me, but we need to experience it in here, inwardly, taste it. I've been changed by it. Can I tell you, one of the intentional things that we've tried to do, you heard about it today when Donald was announcing, two really intentional things that we've tried to create in the rhythm and life of our church toward that end are small groups and also our extended worship and prayer. Those environments have been intentionally put in our schedule, prioritized for this reason. We wanna create the best conditions we know how to facilitate all of our church to be able to understand the truth and taste it. To savor it, to marvel at it, to encounter it, to be transformed by it, but also to understand it, to be able to explain it, to articulate it, to share it with others. Imagine if we as a community walked in both realities, where we can explain, articulate, teach it, share it with others. We understand it. We see it. We know that there's this undeniable evidence. If someone says, does God love you? You don't have to access your feeling or your experience. You could say objectively, clear, defiantly, yes, because he died for me. He rose from, from the dead. He justified me by faith. You could say it that way, but you could also say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I know the powers to come. I've tasted the reality of the kingdom of God because his love has been poured out into my heart. Picture that image, the Holy Spirit with this massive pitcher, and he's pouring the love of God into your heart and mind, and it's going into every nook, every crevice, every negative word ever spoken to you, every source of rejection and fear and, and PTSD and trauma, it, the love of God being poured into all those crevices of our hearts. The Holy Spirit wants to do that for all of us as well as point our hearts and minds to this objective reality that says even when you don't feel it or experience it, you can walk confidently and know I am loved because he hung on a cross in the place called Golgotha. We need both. And God has provided both in Christ. As the worship team comes forward, I want to invite us to enter into a time of reflection, prayer, of response,
Because I wonder for some of us, if today as we've heard the many blessings of justification, if we find ourselves wanting, if we say, man, I, I understand that, but I haven't experienced it. Or I've experienced that, but I don't fully understand that. Or, or maybe you've, uh, you've rested your peace with God on something you can do. And so if you're obedient, you're like, yeah, of course I have peace with God. But if you're struggling, if you're going through something, you lack the confidence, the shameless audacity to come before God. But today you're hearing God declare to you, you have peace with me not because of anything you could do. And today, perhaps that's the thing that God wants to pull out of you, that striving, that seeking to perform and earn, and he wants to place in you a confidence that says, you have peace with me, not because of anything you've done, but because of what my son has done on your behalf. If that gets in your soul and mind, we do not remain the same. Wherever you are, as you're hearing God speaks to us, speak to us from Scripture, could I invite us to stand? And as we stand, as the worship team leads us in response, the prayer team is in the back. And at any given moment as we sing and we respond, I would invite you to just slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. For the words that were shared earlier, if that resonates or something that the message might have spoke or anything you need prayer for, you could just slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer over these next few moments. I encourage you, don't wait, don't hesitate. They're there, they're waiting, they want to pray. Don't leave here carrying a burden that God intended to take off your shoulders from the moment you came in to this room. Can, we, can I invite us, if we're comfortable, can we raise our hands in the presence of God as a posture of surrender, a posture of receiving of, of turning our hearts, our bodies toward his presence and saying, God, I'm here to receive what you have done and who you are. Let's turn to God. Let's worship him together. The Lord's presence is here. Encounter Jesus right now because he wants you to encounter him. Let's receive him. Pour the love of God into our hearts, Holy Spirit, again and again and again. Give us eyes to see what you have done for us. Let's worship. <laughs>